And what happens with a lot of people is as they get older and they accumulate pain and hurts from broken relationships, is they don't want to be vulnerable anymore because they don't want to have to go through that. But that means that the person that broke your heart, that made you vulnerable, has won, has defeated you, has made you turn into something that you don't want to become. So you have to be able to feel that you can be vulnerable, right? And if you're a seducer trying to seduce someone, revealing to that other person that you have fallen under their spell is almost the most seductive thing you can do because it's deeply, deeply exciting to feel that that other person is charmed by us. Welcome to episode 121 of the Michaela Peterson podcast. In this episode, I spoke with best-selling author Robert Greene. It was intense. He walked me through the nine seduction types in one of his books and gave examples of each, told me which one I was and which one he was. It was fun. He spoke about common manipulation techniques, how using his laws of power aren't always manipulative, the ruthless power structures in Hollywood, tips on being vulnerable, and his new book, The Daily Laws. Robert Greene's an American author known for his books on strategy, power, and seduction. He's written six international bestsellers, including The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, The 33 Strategies of War, The 50th Law, Mastery, and The Laws of Human Nature. Like I mentioned, his newest book is The Daily Laws. This was a really fun episode. If you want to learn how to communicate with people effectively and seductively, check out his work. If you like this content, be sure to hit subscribe. I hope you enjoy this episode. Robert Green, welcome to my podcast. Well, thank you for having me so much, Michaela. I really appreciate it. I'm very excited for this episode. I'm a huge fan of your books, so this should be good. I'm a huge fan of your father, his books, and his overall intelligence. So please say hello to him for me. I will. We should get you guys together. I will work on that in the future. That would be a fun conversation. So we'll do that. We'll do that at some point. Uh, Before we get started, could you give a brief background about who you are and what it is you do? Well, um, I'm basically just a writer. I don't really do anything else. I have a seventh book that is coming out. My first book is the most famous. It's The 48 Laws of Power. I've also written The Art of Seduction, The 33 Strategies of War. I did a book that I co-authored with the rapper 50 Cent called The 50th Law. I did Mastery, The Laws of Human Nature, which came out a few years ago. And my new book, The Daily Laws, which will be out in a couple of weeks. And I'm currently working on my eighth book right now. They kind of tend to center on subjects like power and strategy and mastering your own career and, and human behavior if I, had, if I had to choose a common theme. And that's about all I do. Well, eight books is quite a lot. So that sounds like full-time work. Yeah. How did you get started on writing about the topic of power? What makes you knowledgeable about power? Well, I don't really have a degree. It's not anything I could say, oh, I graduated from Princeton with a degree in psychology. Those are overrated anyway, in my opinion. Yeah, (laughs) right. I don't have anything like that. Basically, what happened was in my 20s and 30s, I sort of knew that I wanted to be a writer, but I couldn't quite figure out what I wanted to write. So I tried my hand at all these different jobs. I worked in journalism. I did. Const- I lived in Europe for many years. I worked in a hotel as a receptionist, tour guide in Ireland, a teacher of English in Spain. 
I worked in a detective agency here in Los Angeles. You name it, I did it. And, and then I worked in Hollywood prior to writing my first book. And through all of these experiences, I observed every manner of, hum- of manipulation and power mm-hmm. game that was going on from all different kinds of bosses and all different kinds of endeavors. And I'm somebody who kind of likes authenticity and realness in people. The fact that, um, that we're sort of ashamed of our own nature. We're ashamed that we're this animal that actually has desires for power, that has ambitions, that has a dark side, has always disturbed me. And so based on my experiences and based on all I had learned throughout my years of wandering through my studies in college, the books that I read, I wrote The 48 Laws of Power. Now, I can't say it came from anything else except my own experience and my own brain, but I think the success it has has shown that it's it somehow has resonated with the truth with so many people. Okay. So from your experience in Hollywood, what was the type of manipulation that you saw that was mainly used there? Well, every every single form, because it's a place, an in a place where people pretend to be so liberal, so woke, so progressive. But really what motivates a lot of their behavior is just naked power. They want to have admiration, they want to be recognized, and they want to be respected as someone who has a position of power in the pecking order in Hollywood, right? And so they don't they don't reveal that. It's things that I observe going on behind the scenes that revealed to me all of these manipulative manipulative games that were going on. So so many of the laws of power were kind of based on things I observed, such as conceal your intentions, such as get others to do the work, but always take the credit, on and on and on, crush, even crush your enemy totally. I observed all of those in my experiences in Hollywood, because people are motivated to disguise all of their maneuvers. You know, you don't want to be seen as somebody who's later revealed to be a Harvey Weinstein. You want to project this liberal, magnanimous image. And so it's like something you don't really ever talk about or see, but I saw from firsthand experience, and that's what I wrote about. I mean, I could tell you specific stories. I don't know if you're interested in that or not. I'm interested. I'm definitely interested. <laughs> well, the story that, that kind of sticks out mainly in my mind was I was working for a director. I'm not going to say his name. Um, and basically, he had written a screenplay. Um, and he he was just sort of starting out as a director. He'd written a screenplay and he knew that if he tried to be the director himself, people would think he was being too ambitious. He was gonna write and just direct it and all of that. So what he did was instead, working with the producer, he made a point of hiring this young man who I believe at the time was in his late twenties, who was just starting out, who had had uh, written a screenplay and had directed one film and he hired him knowing full well that it was above his head and that he was more than likely going to fail you know and he kind of set it up so the guy would fail he wasn't always there to help him with certain with meetings and he wasn't helping him working on the script etc and so lo and behold two days into production the guy was messing up left right and center and the producer fired him and now the man that I was working for was able to come and say, look, I can rescue this project. Let me be, let me direct it. And he concealed his intentions completely. The 
nobody had a, a suspected that he was really kind of behind all of this, that he was sort of maneuvering it in that direction. And then it made him look like he was the rescuing angel, as opposed to this devious Machiavellian person who had set it all up. That's creepy. That sounds yeah. like an exhausting way to live, keeping track of all the stories that you're telling people. That sounds like a lot of work. You mean for me personally? Well, no, I meant for the guy who had manipulated no. this person into failing and then taken credit for being the savior. Yeah, it didn't, you know, it, it, in the end, what, what bothered me most of all about it, because, you know, I can't help but say that I'm a little bit admiring people who have the guts to pull something like that off. But on the other hand, he basically ruined this guy's career because oh. it was such a failure that it really hurt his reputation. I, I know I followed it up immediately afterwards and he had gone through, he hadn't written or directed anything since. He may have somehow revived his career, I'm not sure, but it really, really hurt his reputation. And so that was the thing that, that really, really bothered me in the end. Okay, well, it sounds like something that should bother you. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that's interesting. I feel like trying to weave those stories and manipulate situations like that I feel like it's actually more difficult just to do things honestly. What do you mean right. by that? Well, I mean, I mean, the way he went about it, hiring somebody and then having them fail and then saving it, I feel like that's actually the easy way out compared to doing what's honest, which is, hey, I wrote this screenplay and I want to direct it and then fighting that way, which probably makes your life more pleasant in the long run rather than having to manipulate everybody. Is a lot of Hollywood like that with people just playing these games? Well, you know, it's my own personal experience. I yeah. saw that up front. I can't say that it's, it's anecdotal, but I've worked, I've now been working with people in Hollywood who were trying to produce some of my own books for film and television. And I consult with a lot of directors and actors and people in the business. And it's a nat and then they all they all have stories to tell me about things that are even worse than what I've told you. So I do believe it's it's pretty you know spread out there. And even though things are getting better in some ways, they're they're trying to diversify Hollywood, you know, with more women and more ethnicities, et cetera. Still, that old kind of power dynamic is there. Because it's an industry that it's always been like that going back to the earliest days in the 1920s. And so I don't think that's ever really going to change. There is one yeah. industry I can tell you that's even worse than Hollywood, which is I've learned through my, you know, exposure to rappers, et cetera, is the music industry. The things that go on in the music industry make Hollywood look like kindergarten. But Okay. Okay. And is that, is that mostly like relationships between men and women? In the music industry? No, it's between like record producers and artists and managers, et cetera, you know, where it's a very, very exploitative environment where, um, you know, people that you never really know where the money is coming from, how many albums you've sold, oh. particularly now with the um, with so many things being streamed. There's a lot of deception going on, a lot of funny marketing um, I'm sorry, funny accounting going on to hide the revenue streams. And then people who are fresh who come into the business early on, they sign contracts without realizing they're signing away all the ownership to their work. 
Ooh. you know, it was it was 50 Cent who kind of revealed a lot of this to me. And he said, you know, he grew up on the streets of Southside Queens, dealing crack, seeing people murdered, dealing with hardcore stuff day in and day out. And he said, nothing had ever prepared me for the shit I saw in the music business. It was it was worse because at least on the streets, people were direct and you kind of more or less knew where they were coming from. But he never knew where these people were coming from. And it was very disorienting. I wonder if that's going to change rather dramatically, like things are changing so much with people being able to grow social media profiles and have followers on YouTube. I know a couple of artists that haven't signed with anyone because they're like, why? I already have, right. you know, 2 million followers on YouTube. The marketing aspect is kind of gone. I'm wondering if that'll change. And then these contracts that are like, what are they called? The the ones that you, like you said, you sign away everything. Like that's got to start fading away. Even just book publishers, I find, that take a, a large percentage because they're offering marketing services. Well, a lot of people don't need marketing services anymore if they can get on podcasts or, yeah. It's true. It's very true. And there's a kind of a democratization going on. But the only thing that's the film business is different, I think, than those other examples, because to make a film and market it, you really, really are dependent on the Hollywood power structure. You could make your film cheap on an, on an uh, iPhone, for instance, which people do nowadays and film mm -hmm. it, but you're not going to be able to get a theatrical release you're not going to be able to, to get it streaming on Netflix, et cetera. So you are very much dependent on the old power structures there. So that kind of democratization that's very positive that's going on with the Internet, it's happening a little bit in Hollywood, but I don't think it's I think it's going to reach a limit. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised um, for, for the 48 laws of power. Why did you choose yeah. 48? You probably get that question constantly. I get that question. Um, well, I didn't really choose 48. The process was kind of weird. I, I don't usually like to reveal, you know, how the sausage is actually made, but I guess I'll go ahead and tell you. Um, you know, I started out researching all of the great power um, people and influencers throughout history and all cultures and all the power games that were that uh, that were kind of the most sexiest, the most interesting. And out of that, I kind of derived these patterns of, of, of behavior that transcended time and culture. And I had 72 of these patterns originally, which were, which were, were to be loss of power. And slowly I started eliminating them because this didn't seem strong enough. I started combining them, getting rid of them. And I ended up with 52, if you can believe it or not. And publishers said, you know, 52, it doesn't sound good. And it also sounds a little pat. It sounds like you made it to be 52 weeks of the year or 52 cards in a deck. We prefer the number 48. <laughs> and so I go, well, you know, what am I going to say? But then I thought about it because I don't like to be too rigid and, and too closed and stubborn. I thought, it's true. 48 laws sounds a lot better than 52. It looks better. It's, it's a very powerful number. So I'm going to do what they say, but I'm going to take the four laws that are kind of extra and I'm going to combine them into other laws and create these kind of double mm. laws with two sides to them and bring it down to 48. So I don't usually like try to reveal that, but I guess <laughs> you, you, you lured it out of me somehow. But that's sort of why it ended up with 48. 
Okay. Well, clearly that paid off. Something worked. Yeah. So. Well, you know, things like numbers and colors, they have a kind of a primal effect on us. And you can't ignore this sort of nonverbal primitive side of our of our nature. And so, you know, like the color red, as people know on, on who design like Facebook, you know, as a button has this certain effect, whereas black has this effect. The number 48, I for some reason, kind of has this sort of, it just seems definitive. Whereas if it were 47, that wouldn't yeah. have that feeling or 49 or 50 sounds like too obvious. But man, that 48, it's like a sweet spot, you know? What am I going to do? That is strange, but very true. So yeah. are any are any of these laws of power honest or are they all yes. kind of types of manipulation? No, I'd say more than half are honest and more than half are kind of common sense and relatively positive. You know, so interaction with boldness is not an evil law. It means when you start something, if you show that you were bold and decisive, people are attracted to that. I talk about play a perfect courtier. The, the world that we live in, every kind of time there's a power structure, it's like a court surrounding a king. And you have to be charming and you have to be polite and you have to be gracious in this court. So there's nothing kind of, I mean, you might find that a little devious, but it's mostly about being polite and understanding other people and kind of playing, understanding the culture that you're in. There's plenty of, there's a law called work on the hearts and minds of others which means that you can't force people into things. You have to get them to want what you want to do as opposed to pushing them in certain directions. Despise the free lunch, which is all about the power of generosity. You know, you, you don't want to like always be looking for things on the cheap. You don't want to accept things that are free. You want to pay for things and you want to be generous with your time and your money and your energy. I mean, I could go on and on. There's a core, maybe a third that are that are kind of a little bit hardcore and a little bit, well, definitely manipulative, but it's not the majority of laws. Which ones are your favorite? Well, law number one, I have a little, I have a kind of a personal relationship for, for several reasons it's called never outshine the master. And the idea is that if you enter your, the work world and you try so hard to please and impress the boss, uh, which is a very common thing that we do, they might end up feeling that you're that you think that they're better than they are. You might inadvertently outshine them and make them feel insecure. And once you do that, they're never going to tell you that that's what you've done. They're going to fire you and you'll never really understand why. And it's very painful. And I've had that happen to me. I could think at least three times I can recall one very, very most emotional one of all, where I was hired on a television show to do the research and find the stories. And by far, I was the most successful researcher there. But I was making many too many people above me feeling insecure, like they weren't getting credit for things. And they started making my life miserable, and then they fired me. And I couldn't figure out why. You know, like, I produced. I had the best record of all. Why would you fire someone like that? Well, ego matters more than results in a lot of, in a lot of places, that, you know, in a lot of work worlds. And so, um, and, and the reason... I, I like that story so much is I had heard somebody told me a story before all this had happened about Louis the 14th, the great French king of the 17th century, and how he had a finance minister named Nicolas Fouquet, 
who threw the most lavish party in honor of Louis, the king, so that he could ingratiate himself into the king's favor and maybe be not be nominated as prime minister. And the party was so memorable. People wrote about it years later. It had fireworks. It had plays. It was. I, I visited the chateau where it happened. It was just the most probably the most magnificent party ever thrown in the history of mankind. And everyone was like telling Nicholas, "This is a great. This is wonderful." Well, the next day he was thrown in prison, and he spent the rest of his life in prison. He had outshone the king. And I remembered that story years later when it happened to me, and I go. This, this, there's something true there. There's something elemental about human psychology. And years later, when I was pitching, first pitched the idea to the man who produced the 48 Laws of Power, I started with that story. And I told him, this happened 500 years ago when people were wearing powdered wigs and these, all these elaborate costumes. But the world hasn't changed. It's the same dynamic, no matter where you are. So that personally, is kind of maybe one of my favorite laws. And there are others but that, that stands out. That sounds extremely frustrating. It sounds like yeah. you wouldn't want your company to, to grow, really, if your ego is above good work. But isn't that pretty common? Haven't you encountered that as well? I mean, everybody, yeah. you know. Yeah, I but... mean, um, the thing that people make a mistake about, I, I don't know if you agree with me here, but is that you think that the person above you, your boss, who seems, he or she seems so powerful and in control, you don't realize that they have insecurities, that they have an ego, that they have weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And you assume that if you say something that might be a little bit ambiguous, they'll laugh it off because they're so powerful, they don't care about me or what I say. But the truth is, the higher up you go in, in a hierarchy, the more insecure you become the more you're worried about whether people really, truly respect you, you know, whether you, people really are truly admiring you, whether you have their attention or not. And so powerful people often have more insecurities than those on the bottom of the scale. And you go into the work world, not thinking of the egos of powerful people, but it's, it, it's very evident and it can cause you a lot of problems. Okay, that makes sense. And that might be because people at the top have more to lose, potentially. That could play into it, maybe. Very much so. That's very true. Okay. Okay. Your your book on seduction. So that's a bit... Yep. Is there an overlap between that and power? And what do you define as seduction exactly? Well, there is an overlap. So there are several uh, chapters in the 48 Laws that have to do directly with seduction. I tell seduction stories. There's one law in particular... You use absence to create honor and respect. And it's basically how you need to occasionally absent yourself from other people to get them to fantasize and think about you. And that your absence can often be more powerful than your presence. You can be too much in people's face and they start to see you too familiar and they disrespect you. Whereas if you step away and they don't see you for a few days, they start wondering about you and it seems very powerful. Well, I consider, I, I say in the modern world, that you can't be too forceful and direct, too brutish, or people are going to turn against you. It looks ugly. So the, the game of power is to always appear to be a paragon of virtue, as they do in Hollywood, but to actually be aware of the hardcore games going on and to occasionally play them yourself. And seduction is the ultimate form of this power. It's what Napoleon Bonaparte said, putting your iron fist inside a velvet glove. 
So when people feel your hand on them, it feels so soft and velvety, but actually it's very firm and it's pushing people in the direction you want. So this is kind of a soft power. And seduction is by far the ultimate form of this because what you're doing is you're creating pleasure for people. You're giving them kind of what they want, what they secretly desire. And not many of us have enough pleasure in this life. In fact, it's something that I think all of us lack. We wish we had more of it because we're so stressed and we work way too hard. Somebody who comes into your life and gives you something that you don't have, gives you an experience that's different, that's exciting, that's seductive and alluring, you, your guard comes down, your defenses go down. Normally, we're very resistant people. We're, we're very defensive. But when somebody does something that gives us that pleasurable moment, our, our walls come down. We start losing some of that defensiveness. And now we're open to other things that they can do or say to us. And they have a power over us that they wouldn't have if they were so obvious and tried to make us do something. And so I thought seduction is the ultimate form of power in the modern world. And what I wanted to do in the art of seduction was get beyond just simple sexual seductions. You know, I've certainly described seductions between men and women, gay, lesbian, I even have a trans seduction in there. For sure, there's the sexual aspect. But I also talk about social seductions where you're seducing people in the work world. There's no sex involved. I talk about political seductions. I talk about marketing seductions. What is the psychology that ties all of this together? What is it about us human animals that make us so vulnerable and so open to this process of seduction? So that's sort of why I wrote the book. That's very cool. Do you think people who end up seducing you in some way, so giving you some pleasure that you want and then you open up, can that be carried out for a very long time? Or do you think that's kind of fleeting and it gets burnt up eventually? Or is there a relationship you can have where that can just continue? Or ideally, both parties can do that for a very long time. Well, you know, a lot of people have come to me, unfortunately, they come to me for advice on their romantic relationships. I say unfortunately. Can't imagine why, yeah. I'm not, I don't consider myself an expert on that, but people who know more than I do. But the number one complaint I get, I hear, and I hear it more often from women, but I also hear it from men, is not that the man keeps seducing me day in and day out, (laughs) but that he stopped, he started taking me for granted. He's become so familiar. In the beginning, he started taking me out to to movies. He took just exotic places, great restaurants. He dressed well. You know, he was kind of um, doing things that that were very exciting. And now, six months into the relationship, he doesn't do it anymore. He doesn't put any effort into it. He stopped seducing me in some way. He's become too familiar. And it could be he or she. Excuse my use of only that pronoun. And so. The idea was, and I wrote about this in The Art of Seduction, I think it's chapter 24, is that you want to keep seducing the person that you're in a relationship with. You can't do it with the same intensity or it would get tiring for both of you, right? Because we do want to settle into a relationship. We do want a degree of familiarity with the other person. We do want to feel Mm -hmm. comfortable. But upon occasion, you have to go back to those original moments that sparked your desire for the other person that made that connection so electrifying between. And you need to revive it and you need to do some of the things that you did before, you know, whatever that is. Surprise them with, with a gift that, that, that says something personal about them or take them to some place that they're not expecting to keep surprising them. Because once the mystery is gone, 
once people are so familiar to you, there's something that's lost in there, you know? And so it's not that you're constantly seducing them. I don't think that's even possible. It's that you don't lose the sense of the fact that you have to think about the other person and their spirit and do things that continually surprise and excite them. I don't think there's anything amoral or wrong about that. I think it's very healthy. No. For somebody who doesn't give advice about seduction, that sounds that sounds pretty like pretty good <laughs> advice. Uh, I also suppose that when people get into a relationship, the seduction part is the first part, because as soon as you're in a relationship and it's stable, you're not necessarily seducing anymore, right? Because right. seduction would occur before you actually get that person, right? Yes. Yeah, and, and a lot of people, what happens is, um, you know, in the in the first part of the book, I have the nine types of seducers. And I'm trying to tell you that you're going to be one of these types. You know, there's the siren, the rake, the charmer, the natural, the dandy, the charismatic, et cetera, et cetera. What's you're the dandy? The dandy is a person who has a kind of androgynous edge to them. It's a man who has a slight feminine edge. It doesn't seem make him seem, you know, gay or whatever, if, if he is straight. It just is intriguing. Think of like a Mick Jagger or a rock star like yeah, that or a, okay. Dave, a David Bowie. It kind of adds to their romantic allure. And there is a slight bisexual element to that, no doubt. And in a woman, it's a slight sort of masculine edge, like a Marlena Dietrich or a Madonna. And that slight edge of masculinity doesn't put men off. It excites them. And I explain why in that chapter. So that's the dandy. Um, I can't remember why I'm talking about this. I had a reason behind it. What was your question before? Do you remember? I, I can't remember my question before, but I have a new question anyway. Marilyn okay. Monroe, does she fall yeah. under the siren? Most definitely. She's like, there are two icons for, for the siren, which is the first type that I talk about because it's the oldest seductive type in history. It goes back to ancient Greece, the, the sirens themselves in the myth. Um, Cleopatra is the first icon oh, of yeah. it. And then Marilyn Monroe is the second. And the reason is, is that the siren has a kind of a theatrical edge to her. It's always a woman in this case. Well, all the other types, except the rake, rakes are only men. All the other types can be either gender. But the siren is a woman who exudes this kind of natural sexuality in everything she does, right? She doesn't have to come on overtly but it's in her glances, it's in her voice, it's in her the way she moves her body. And Marilyn Monroe was the quintessence of this. And part of it comes from her, from her story. She was an orphan, right? She had a very tough childhood. And her whole life was about the fact that she felt abandoned, that she never had the love of a parent in her life. And it was very real. And so her desire was to get love from everybody she came upon. And she learned early on that by wearing a certain kind of sweater, she could excite men and, and, and get attention from them. And then she learned when she became an actress to kind of make love to the camera, to kind of look at the camera in a way that wasn't obvious, but it, it kind of reaped some sort of animal sexuality. And it was very, very seductive. It made her, you know, the quintessence of, of, of beauty and seduction of her time. And so, yeah, she, she's definitely one of the icons of that, for sure. 
You talked about the rake. Can you describe the rake? Yeah, I mean, I was a rake. Uh, I'm what you call a reformed rake, so I can speak from experience on that. And basically, my years of being a rake were in my 20s and pretty much early 30s, and then it was then I stopped. But the rake is a man who has an intense interest in women. He understands them deeply. He's obsessed with women. And perhaps it comes from something, relationship going with his mother. You know, we can analyze that as well. But he has this obsessive interest in them. He understands their spirit. He finds it very exciting to be around them. But one woman can never satisfy him. The only way he can get satisfaction is by constantly having new women in his life. That's how he that's how he satisfies this hunger, because the moment that a woman becomes familiar, it kind of loses the, the edge that he wants. He's kind of like a hunter. He loves the process of hunting the woman, of, of seducing her, of getting her to fall for him. And in those first few weeks, he showers her with attention. That's his power. He love bombs them. He's so, he's so excited by their world. He gives them gifts that show he's thinking about them. He takes them to exciting places. It's irresistible, right? And um, But the thing is, it can't last because he has to continually spread, spread the wealth. He has to continually find new people to conquer. And I, I, in, I, in the book, I kind of um, profile some of the greatest rakes who ever lived. And one of them is the, is the great classic Hollywood actor, Errol Flynn. Um, Errol Flynn was this devilishly handsome man that didn't hurt, but he was also, in the end, people claimed that he had seduced or slept with about 3,000 women. And, um, and he died when he was 51, 52 from alcoholism. Oh. And so I went, when I wrote the book, I kind of did the math on that. And the math was rather insane. It was like at some point he had to be seducing a new woman every other day, something like that. And I was trying to figure out what was his secret? What made him so insanely seductive to women of all types, actresses, waitresses, you name it. Of course, being Errol Flynn and having his reputation helped, but he also had an, a devilish edge that kind of scared a lot of women. But I read in one book that just being around, he was so comfortable with himself. He was so non-defensive. He was like an animal that was completely comfortable in his body. And it was, it made the woman completely relax. This one woman said, yeah. it, I felt like I had drunk a couple of martinis and I hadn't just by being around him, you know? And so the rake has this kind of undefensive quality. He's like this natural animal that exudes this energy, kind of like how the siren is. So that's sort of what a rake is. That was awesome. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay, so I was going to ask what the equivalent of that was for a woman, but you're saying the siren, kind of. Yes. Um, yeah, definitely the siren. I mean, you can't really have a male siren and you really can't have a female yeah. rape. I mean, um, I do profile in, the, in, the, in, the, in that section, probably the greatest lesbian seductress who ever lived, Natalie Barney, who was kind of a poet and writer in the early 20th century. And she was the closest equivalent I could come to a female rape because um, she was seducing women left, right, and center. And she had a little bit of that presence. But normally it's something that's pretty specific to men and women. Okay. That description was amazing. Can I get you to do one more? That was amazing. <laughs> sure. 
Okay, anyone? I want yeah, and another um, I guess seductive type. Do you want me to list what the other ones are? Yeah, yeah. So that was too cool. About, we need to do more. Uh, well, that was the the dandy I already mentioned. The natural, which is the one who's kind of like a child. Then there's the coquette. Blows hot and cold. Very, very powerful seductress. Um, there's the charmer, who's very good at sort of social seductions. There's the star, the person who kind of exudes kind of like a like a film star presence that makes everyone project their fantasies onto him or her. And there's the charismatic, somebody who just has that natural charisma. I can't think if I'm leaving somebody. Oh, the ideal lover. That those okay. those are the other seven types. So you choose whichever one you want. Okay. What was you said? There was one where you project your ideal lover on them. Well, the star is is sort of this person I use as the example. Um, the, the woman is Marlena Dietrich, and the man was John F. Kennedy, excuse me, <clears throat> President John F. Kennedy. And what it is, is they've learned the Hollywood technique. And for Marlena Dietrich, it was clearly, you know, a film thing that she had learned, was you have a kind of blankness to you. You're not too obvious in what you say and what you do. You're not overtly this way or that way. You have a kind of an emptiness to your face, to your blankness, to how you move. And you allow people, you don't talk too much, and you allow people to project onto you their fantasies. They see into you what they want to see into you. Whereas if you kind of say who you are and you're too direct, they have a, they have a mysterious air about them. And John F. Kennedy, he uh, was obsessed with Hollywood. This is something people don't understand or know very well. He was obsessed with Hollywood. He was obsessed with film stars. And his favorite film star from the classic age of Hollywood was Montgomery Cliff, very handsome young man from the late 40s, early 50s. And he modeled his whole persona after Montgomery Cliff, what? that kind of silent machismo that he exuded, that kind of certain look in his eye that Montgomery Cliff had. And it was immensely powerful, as we saw in the election in 1960, where so many people saw into him what they wanted to see, you know, and he disguised the reality. He disguised the reality that he was actually a man in his 40s who was physically almost crippled. He had all of these illnesses. He could His back was in incredible pain, but he was able to disguise all of it and, and project this other image. Mm -hmm. So he, these are the two people that I chose to to kind of illustrate that. Wow. And then you're like a, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Well, you're kind of like a blank screen onto which people can see what they want to see. And there's a way to do that. And I kind of describe in that chapter how you can do that. Can you describe how you can do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I understand, Michaela, I've written seven books and, and I can't remember it all of the details. Um, you know, like, so for, for someone like Marlena Dietrich, she would dress in a certain way where it seemed kind of ambiguous and you didn't know what she was doing or what it meant. She would wear, for instance, she was also a dandy. She would wear, for instance, a man's tailored suit, right? And um, But she would do it in a way, the way she hold her cigarette, the way she walked down the stairs, where you thought she was, there was something going on. She had like this added presence 
but she couldn't figure out what it was because she didn't say or do anything directly. She didn't purposely demonstrate why she was wearing that or, or, or reveal, you know, something by the way she walked. It was just nonverbal. There was something about her in air. And she learned in front of the camera, if you've ever acted before, you understand that quietness is much more powerful than noise. If your face is quiet, you're able, and your whole body is quiet, and your spirit is quiet, you attract the camera, you attract attention, it looks powerful. In theater, if there are like five actors on the stage, the man or woman who stands with dignity, who's calm, who doesn't say anything but has this presence, that's where your eye goes to. And the camera knows this. So that kind of blankness, where you allow people to see into you what they want, is what the camera loves. And any actor kind of learns that. I mean, I, I direct the listener here to go and read the chapter on the star because there's more kind of practical advice in there if that's what you want. Each each of the each of the categories, there's a lot of advice about because the idea is, Michaela, is you have one of these qualities in you. It's natural to you. You're kind of born with it. I don't care who you are or how, what your looks are or whatever. You have one of these qualities because seduction isn't about beauty. It's about a kind of understanding human psychology. And if you're too obvious in your seductive techniques, if you've read Robert Book's The Art of Seduction and you try to apply A, B, and C to a man or a woman, it's not good. It's going to fail because it looks too cold and calculating. But if you see this natural quality in you, if you know that you're a coquette by nature, somebody who blows hot and cold, and you know how to bring it out and make it more conscious and aware and a little more put a little more emphasis on it. You're seducing without appearing unnatural. You're seducing without appearing like it's forced. Mm. It just comes from your personality. And that kind of makes it doubly effective. That's interesting. I wonder if at some point, my dad has all these personality scales with a big five. I wonder if you could figure out what kind of personality each of these types has there must be similarities is it do you think it's based on personality what these nine types yeah it's based on a kind of energy that goes that predates that it's almost like a Jungian I know your father's heavily into Jung into these kind of archetypes that human okay. the humans kind of fall into right and it's almost like an energy that you have and you know somebody like the siren, there might be a genetic component to a woman who has that. But also for the siren and the rake, I do believe that there's something in the relationship to the father and the mother that kind of steers people in that direction. You know, there's the Jungian concept of the animus and the anima. Mm -hmm. The anima for the man, the animus for the woman. It's the internalized image of your mother, if you're a man, inside of you. And it becomes the kind of woman you're always looking for or the internalized image of your father becomes your animus and has a heavy influence on in all the partners that you end up choosing. So there's a level that goes very deep inside of our nature, either early childhood or even genetic, that kind of pushes us in these directions. That is so cool. Okay. Oh. I'm going to have to figure out what I am. Which, yeah, which one, which one would you be? I don't know. I have no idea. What do you think? I know we've only been talking for half an hour. <sighs> I would say either like 
po- possibly the siren. I can and, get behind that. <laughs> <laughs> and possibly um, the charismatic. You know, I, I'd have to know you a little bit, but that would be the first one that I would kind of be, that I would think of would be the siren. Sweet. Whichever one the uh, <laughs> stand in a room silently to attract attention, I'm not that one. Okay, then you're not the star. Okay, you could, not you, the star. Yeah, you could have a bit of the natural in you as well. I don't know. We tend to have one that's predominant for me, the rake. But there's also a second quality that's always there. And for me, that's sort of the natural. So there might be a second one lurking within you as well, or even a third. Who knows? Cool. Okay. Um, you mentioned going hot and cold. Does that mean just being, you know, all into a relationship and then you're angry about something? What do you mean by hot and cold? Well, that's the coquette. And although we traditionally associate the coquette with women, there are plenty, plenty of male coquettes out, out there. And the idea is you know how to, to be hot. In other words, to to be excited by that other person, to send them looks that show that you're interested in them, to do things that show that you're interested. And once they take a step towards you, you now take a step back and you blow wow. kind of cold and you're not so attentive and you don't return their, their texts right away and you don't return their phone calls. And they start wondering, he or she was really into me, but now they don't seem to be so into me. Is it my fault that I do something wrong? I better try even harder to get their attention. So you chase them mm. and then maybe they get hot again and they excite you because they have to keep, keep the flame flickering. Otherwise it'll die out. And then they step back. They blow hot and they blow cold, hot and cold, hot and cold. And it's devilishly seductive. I know it's, I've fallen for it in, in my youth as well. I have a terrible weakness for coquettish women. And it can drive you absolutely crazy because it makes you think that something is wrong with you and that you have to try harder to get them. And once you think that you have to try harder to seduce them, you are the one who's completely seduced, right? So it's it's the classic hard to get. But if you're always hard to get, then nothing will happen. You know, have to occasionally mix in the easy to get with the hard to get. Yeah, I think I had a relationship like that. I don't think I'm a fan of that at all. No, it's not. It's not a very nice quality, but it's extremely effective, I'm afraid. Okay. Okay. And then last question about this. This is fascinating. Um, the natural. You said that was your kind of backup. So what's the natural? Well, like? the natural, the, um, the icon for that was Charlie Chaplin. Um, basically, it's a person who has retained a lot of their childhood qualities right? And older. And then the other, the female version of it is Josephine Baker, the great African-American dancer and actress of the 20s and 30s and 40s. These are people who, they don't seem infantile, but they've grown up and they've retained a lot of the child within them, right? They seem to have that kind of impish, mischievous quality of a child. They don't seem to be trying to put something on. They're just authentically who they are. They're naturally spontaneous. They're naturally funny. Sometimes they may say something that will offend like children will do, right? But they're very charming in the fact that they don't seem to be trying, that they're so authentic, right? And Josephine Baker 
was this amazing dancer um, in the 20s. She was also a bit of a dandy as well. She would wear, she would dress as a man. But her dancing was so wild and so, nobody had ever seen any dancing like that. Nowadays, we're kind of used to it because we see twerking and all kinds of things on, on the internet. <laughs> but this was the version of it in the 20s and 30s. Whoa, where's this woman coming from? You know, only a child would be acting like that. She's so natural. She's so comfortable with herself. And, and I tell in the story how she learned as a child to always kind of live inside of her fantasy worlds that she had as a child and kind of retain that as she got older. And so, so I was staying in that kind of child dream world, fantasy world is very seductive on other people, you know? And so, um, you know, it, the reason it's so seductive is it doesn't seem like a put on. And someone like a Charlie Chaplin was an incredibly effective seducer. And so there is an element of calculation behind it. You kind of know that that spontaneity, that childlike quality is very seductive, very alluring to people. So you're going to kind of give it a little extra sometimes. You're aware of it and you kind of, you know, act a little stronger in that direction. So. Okay, that makes sense. Um, for people who are having trouble, because there are many people, I would say probably men in general have more trouble with seduction than women, probably. But do you have, say, three tips for people who are having trouble seducing other people? I don't know. I have three. I have two that come to mind. Maybe a third will come to me in a few minutes. Um, the first one is you have to be able to get outside of yourself. So in this sense, seducing is very healthy. It means that normally what where a lot of men go wrong, in particular, is they're thinking about themselves all the time. They're thinking, does she really like me? Am I really saying the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? I've got to try really hard to make sure that she actually likes me. And they're inside their own thoughts and their own, their own world. And what they need to do instead, and this applies to women as well, is get inside the other person's world. That's the key to seducing them, to understand Michaela, her childhood, her needs, what she has and what she lacks in life, her weaknesses her vulnerabilities, what will put a smile on her face, what will excite her. And so when you, get, when you have that philosophy, you listen in a different way. You're listening to them with this kind of focus where you're picking up little cues that they say of things that excite them or, or repulse them, and you're kind of remembering them. And then later, days later, you say something that relates to something that they had expressed and it reveals how deeply you were listening and it's very seductive. Or you give them a gift that, is that isn't necessarily expensive, but is tailored to something that they had said, some nuance that they had revealed in their conversation. It seems very personal. So getting outside of yourself and getting into the spirit of the other person is probably the most important thing of all. The second one, which is related to the first one, is to lose your defensiveness, to lose your defensive qualities to be open to the other person, to being vulnerable to the other person. You know, a lot of people now in the world today are very defensive and for mm -hmm. good reason, because our lives are so stressful. We have so many things in our face, so many people bothering us, et cetera. And we kind of get really rigid and tight and, and defensive. And it's, you can even physically locate it in our chest areas, et cetera. And the idea of being vulnerable 
of opening up to another person, allowing them to have power over us is actually frightening for a lot of people. But it's, it's, it's unnatural. It's not human because we have a tremendous need to feel vulnerable, to feel open to the influence of another person, to have that electrical current going back and forth. And it stems from our childhood where we were so vulnerable to the spirit of our father or our mother. And it delighted us, right? There was a kind of bond between us, like between a mother that transcends, you know, you're almost a part of her in some way. And so that need to feel connected and to feel vulnerable is very human. And what happens with a lot of people is as they get older and they accumulate pain and hurts from broken relationships, is they don't want to be vulnerable anymore because they don't want to have to go through that. But that means that the person that broke your heart, that made you vulnerable, has won, has defeated you, has made you turn into something that you don't want to become. So you have to be able to feel that you can be vulnerable, right? And if you're a seducer trying to seduce someone, revealing to that other person that you have fallen under their spell is almost the most seductive thing you can do because it's deeply, deeply exciting to feel that that other person is charmed by us, right? But in order to do that, you have to be vulnerable to them. So those are the two keys. If I, I could come up with a third, but I'm no, that was I'm good. Kind of, I'm kind of slowing down here. Yeah, that. no, that that was really good. Um, okay. I was I was quite ill for most of my life. I had auto. I know, disorders. I know. I was I was really really ill, and part of the way I got through that was building up these kind of like psychological walls so that I couldn't feel. And then once I got healthy, I still had these walls up and it took me a number sure. of years to start like shedding them. And it was like, it was so absurd. It was like, I could feel, I could feel when they went away and I'd cry a whole bunch and then I'd be like, okay, walls are lowering, walls are lowering. It's great. Yeah, it was wild. How, how, so, how, did, how, did you, how did you lower the walls? Do you remember? Yeah, I'd connect with people. And in order, you know, I'd connect with somebody and then... I'd hit a wall and be like, oh, I could feel it, right? It was like, I'm not right, oh, right, I'm right, not right. connecting. There's some sort of blocking. And right. then I just kind of, it was, it hurt almost, but I'd relax it a little bit and be like, okay, you know, I'm not in the same kind of chronic ill health problems that I was. Like I can let my walls right. down a little bit and then I right. could experience more positive emotion, more connection. But yeah, I'd say a lot of people are suffering from from that, from being hurt, from relationship problems, from being ill, from being stressed. I'm sure COVID hasn't contributed very well to that. No, no, no. That's definitely put a damper on people's dating habits for sure. Yeah, that's very valuable information then. Um, do you have, I guess, do you have advice for people who are kind of trapped to try and let down some of their walls? Well, uh, I think you, what you said is, is very valid and very interesting. It's the fact that you could feel them rising up. You could feel yourself starting to judge the other person, right? That's sort of, we disguise our own defensiveness from to ourselves. We say it's the other person who's acting in this way that isn't right. They're being aggressive. They're bothering us, et cetera. And we blame them. Whereas you have to look inward and see that maybe you were the one that's putting up the wall, not them doing something to you, you are afraid of, of being hurt. And so you're finding an excuse to kind of raise the wall, you know, and you're, you're, you're thinking of, 
you're anticipating the hurt or the pain that's going to come, right? And it starts with you. And so being aware of the fact that you are probably, you know, if you look at how you judge other people, that's a sure sign of your defensiveness. Now, sometimes you're right in your judgments and you need to be somewhat defensive because there are scary people in the world. There are toxic narcissists, for instance. There are people who are very aggressive and dangerous. So you can't just be open to everyone going around. You're going to really, really suffer. So there's a good reason to be a little bit defensive in this world, and I understand that. But the point where it becomes painful and unproductive is in your personal, intimate relationships. So, you know, you, you carry over your, your fear of people into these personal relationships, and you're not even aware of it happening because you think it comes from them, but it's really from your own defensiveness. And you have to be aware of the fact that you're not, that you're paying a price for that. You're not being a complete human being because we are more than anything. We're not these intellectual, rational animals. We're emotional animals. Emotions dominate our behavior. Emotions dominate our reactions to the world. They are much more powerful than thoughts. Where are these emotional animals? And to not ex experience the full range of emotion, to not experience the full range of love, and as well as depression and hurt, is to be part half human, right? And so you're really in the end hurting yourself. You're not protecting yourself, you're hurting yourself. And I repeat once again, that it's very important to, to, uh, to be able to detect the toxic people out there. And that was the subject of my last book, The Laws of Human Nature. But you can't, you have to be at some point not be paranoid and realize that not everybody is like that. And that you have to kind of let yourself be vulnerable so that you can experience, sometimes experiencing pain and depression is important and necessary is part of growth. It's part of being a human being. You know, we all go through those periods. I go through them myself. But to try and repress that and to make everything kind of even where you're not experiencing joy or pain is, I think, to stifle your 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 human qualities. Yes. That was great. Have you had negative feedback from any of the books you've written? Of course. I mean, um, Mostly the first two books, because they're the, they're the darkest, the most devious of my books, if you, if you want to say it, put it that way. And, um, you know, people were saying that um, I was promoting kind of a, a, almost rape culture or something that and it wasn't my intention at all. And most people who like sometimes I get um, emails. I've gotten a lot of emails from women who say, I think. This man, this boyfriend of mine, former boyfriend, read your book, and he did some really awful things to me, and I and I feel very bad about that. You know, it's not the majority; it's occasional, and sometimes I've tried to advise them about how you know what how to respond to that and how to feel afterwards. So I get some negative feedback from that and from the Forty Eight Laws, but most of it is I'm not personally. I mean. I don't know if people will believe it, but I'm not personally a devious, evil, Machiavellian character. I'm more kind of naive and innocent, kind of stupid in some ways. And when I entered the work world, I was making all kinds of mistakes, like I mentioned earlier in Hollywood. I outshone the master, et cetera, et cetera. And so I wrote the 48 Laws of Power and the Art of Seduction 
from the point of view of people who are not good at the game, who need to understand how it works so that they can defend themselves and so they, they can use some of these laws of power as well in the world. Um, but yeah, I, I still get this criticism and, and I understand where it's coming from. Okay, that makes sense. Well, Robert Greene, that was amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, that well, was... thank you. I, re I really enjoyed it. Yeah, that I was wanted really to hear. Cool. I wanted to hear more of your stories, but we'll maybe do that another time. We should do that another time. We should do that another time for sure. And I think I'll hook yeah. you up with my dad. I think you guys would have a great conversation. So well, we we shared we shared some similar interests. You know, um, I mean, I've read his books, and I know we're both interested in Jung. Yeah, and we're both very much interested in ancient cultures and ancient civilizations, and history, um, that and a few other similar interests, but. That would yeah. be fun. That would be fun. I have your, I'm going to link this below. I have this okay. here. Yeah. So that's going to be linked wow. below. When is it out? It's out October 12th. Okay. Um, yeah. And basically what it is, is um, it's extracts and from podcasts and from my books and from things I've written over the course of my, of the 25 years that I've been writing. And each day is kind of a meditation on a specific subject. And it's basically, I'm trying to help you gain a more realistic attitude towards life so that you don't, so that you understand people on a deeper level and that you understand yourself on a deeper level. And it's kind of structured to take you through the whole year, focusing on your career, focusing on power games, focusing on seduction and influence, and then finally focusing on human nature. And the last month, there are extracts from the new book that I'm working on called The Law of the Sublime. So there's some original material in there. But it's basically a book to make you think every day and kind of absorb ideas that are scattered throughout six of my other books. That's so cool. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's dated. You can start yeah. in. Yeah, this is great. What the mentor needs, how to learn quickly and deeply understand how the brain works. Okay. Well, thank you very much for the book. Thank you very You're much very for welcome. coming on. That was a very entertaining podcast. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you liked it. Thank you. I enjoyed it myself. I found it very entertaining as well. Good. Okay. And, well, and that's, that's Clint Eastwood staring at me. I've been kind of intimidated by that gun being pointed at me, but <laughs> yeah, Clint Eastwood, our Marlon Brando over there. Yeah. I recognize that. Johnny then, Cash. Um, or yes, your, I know. Yeah. Your icons. Yeah. Your role models. Yeah, exactly. Marilyn Monroe is around here too, but she's not in this room. Oh, okay. Okay. Very good. Okay. Well, thanks for coming on. That was fun. Thank you so much, Michaela. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm.